You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. Now, Savage has come out with a new model, and that model is the 110 Ultralight. At under six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. This comes in a variety of calibers. It has a gray AccuFinish stock with adjustable comb height. This is an awesome rifle, and uh, basically Savage is at it again. These guys have done amazing things in the past, and now they're doing amazing things in the future. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit SavageArms.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have a really interesting episode. Today we're going to be talking with Larry Gullett. Larry is the director of the Johnson County Conservation Board, and specifically on this episode today, we're going to be talking about a recent lake restoration project that went down at Kent State Park, and that's just west of Tiffin, Iowa. Uh, He talks about water clarity issues that led to the proposal to redo this lake, about how there was a lot of algae uh, in this lake, how some of the, the carp that were put in this lake long time ago we're eating all the vegetation that the fish used to love he talks about how they drain the lake how they restructure it with specific fish habitat and fish structure and uh it's just a really cool episode for one reason to me personally and that is that my family we live close enough to where we go there about oh a couple times a month and enjoy it walk around the lake walk around the trails Uh, we haven't been fishing there yet but after talking to jerry or excuse me larry about this man it makes me want to get uh get a canoe and do a little fishing there as well because in this episode you're going to hear about where they've located all over where they've placed all of the underwater structure so if you have a canoe you might be able to get in there and uh you know catch some fish but it's a really awesome episode more or less about conservation and how a group of people are able to take this, I think it's like 26 acre lake, drain it, redo it, and now the water quality is better than it's ever been before. So awesome episode. Uh, But before we get into this episode, I just want to say, if you haven't stopped by the Iowa Sportsman website, iowasportsman.com, or have... uh, purchased a subscription to the magazine, the Iowa Sportsman Magazine. You can do that all on iowasportsman.com. And please be sure to subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman podcast. You're listening to that right now. You can download or you can uh, subscribe to that on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. And uh, tons of great information, not only about the state of Iowa, but you can use these principles, um, especially when it comes to tactics and gear that we talk about in this episode or on this uh, podcast about that, that kind of transfer states lines, right? So we, what we talk about isn't, it it is about Iowa, but it can go beyond uh, the state lines of Iowa. So I really appreciate everybody who's taking time out of their, their day to listen to this. So I appreciate it enough talking. Let's get into today's episode with Larry Gullett. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Larry Gullett. Larry, how are you doing today? Doing great, thank you, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, um, I'm really excited about this because we had someone from Effigy Mounds on the podcast, uh, oh, a couple months ago. And it's always cool talking with someone about places that I can actually enjoy or that I I have actually enjoyed throughout my life. And uh, Effigy Mounds is one of them. And currently, one of my kids' favorite places to go is Kent Park in Tiffin, Iowa, or west west of Tiffin in in Johnson County. And uh, you guys kind of have gone through a, a lake restoration project recently, and that got me curious about it. So I figured... That's some pretty good content. Let's get somebody on the phone to uh, talk about that. 
But before we jump into the meat and potatoes of all of that, Larry, why don't you tell us uh, what your title is, uh, who you work for, and what a, an average day looks like for you? Uh, yeah, okay. My, my name is Larry Gullett. I'm the executive director of the Johnson County Conservation Board. And the only thing consistent about my job on a day-by-day basis is that it's inconsistent. (laughs) Uh, I get to do something different every day. That's awesome. And, you know, it's really uh, stimulating to be able to work on multiple projects at the same time. And so in addition to managing 18 different areas around the county, uh, we also have quite a few development projects going on. So uh, when you have all that development going on as a result of the conservation bonding referendum to put more money into conservation, combined with the day-to-day uh, routine maintenance and operation and taking care of people, enjoying our parks and trails, um, it keeps us all busy and, and uh, it's a really stimulating job to have. How long have you been there? I've been here, uh, it would be seven years, July 1st, so right at seven years. Okay. Are you an Iowa native, or have you uh, come from someplace else? Yeah, no, I grew up in Newton, Iowa, and I worked for Jasper County Conservation Board. I worked for the Army Corps of Engineers at Sailorville Lake. Uh, I worked for 10 years as executive director of the Jones County Conservation Board up near Monticello and Anamosa, and then... uh, I worked for Dallas County Conservation Board west of Des Moines for about 18 years. So I've worked for four different county conservation boards and the Corps of Engineers, and I currently work for Johnson County Conservation near Iowa City. Gotcha, yeah. So is Kent Park the the Johnson County headquarters? Yeah, yeah. We call it our flagship park, and it's where our main administration office is as well as the uh, main operations center but we have four different operation centers around the county or operation shops around the county but camp parks is our flagship park where everything is based out of it right okay that makes a lot of sense and then um you mentioned 17 other areas within johnson county what are some of those areas that you guys uh that you guys manage um we manage the hills access and campground uh, just south of Iowa City along the Iowa River. We manage Peckman Creek Delta, which is a 380-acre wildlife area along the Iowa River, uh, just a mile north of Highway 22. Then we manage um, River Junction Campground along the river in the extreme southern part of the county, Walker Park and River Junction. Uh, we also manage uh, Cedar River Crossing. It's about a 570-acre area up near Sutliff, wildlife area along the Cedar River. TFN Preserve, uh, located near Sutliff also. Um, we recently acquired and have been managing for two years what we're calling now the Schwab-Burford acquisition, but we haven't given it an official name yet. It's in central Johnson County off of Sugar Bottom Road. And then uh, in the last five years, we've adopted a countywide trails program. We currently manage the Dubuque Street Trail north of Iowa City up to North Liberty. Uh, We just put in the Hoover Trail from Solon up to Ely. Um, We also manage the Clear Creek Trail going west out of uh, Tiffin uh, towards Camp Park. And uh, so we have we have four different on oh, the Mahaffey Bridge Trail was just built last year, too, on the north side of North Liberty. So uh, also Williams State Preserve over on the western part of the county. So we manage areas all over the county, and they range from high-use recreation areas like Kent Park all the way to secluded nature preserves. Okay. So you guys kind of got a whole bunch of irons in the fire. We, we do, and in 2008, uh, the voters in Johnson County passed the first-ever conservation bond in the state of Iowa for county conservation boards, and what the voters said was, is we want 
more conservation and we want more recreation. We want you to focus on biosensitive sites along rivers and streams. We want you to focus on water quality and we want you to focus on trails. And so that's just what we've been doing. And um, that was in 2008, some 12 years ago. And at this point in time, we've implemented close to about $30 million in projects. And we've spent uh, $16 million of that conservation bond money. So we have four to four and a half million dollars left, but we're leveraging that money whenever we do a project through writing grants. And the lake restoration project is a water quality project. And the Iowa DNR came in as a major partner and cost shared with us one-to-one. So every dollar that the residents of Johnson County put into the project, the Iowa DNR also provided expertise and put in another dollar. Wow. So it's two two departments basically working together to accomplish a goal. That's exactly right. And then when we started the project, we had a planning team set up with uh, staff people from the NRCS and United States Geological Survey and different agencies that had technical expertise, and they helped uh, us, along with the DNR, develop the goals and the plan for the project. Awesome. Man, that's cool. All right, so yeah. I want to talk to you, before before we talk about the Lake Restoration Project, I want to talk about how you guys go about selecting a project to work on, because from from my understanding and who I've talked with throughout the state, whether that's, uh, um, you know, wildlife biologists or it's someone from the Corps of Engineers, you know, there's all these projects that come to the table, but only a handful of, of, of them get selected to actually become projects. So how, how did you guys make the decision to spend that money on Kent Park to do this project? Right, and so, so we go through strategic planning processes, and uh, those processes are designed to uh, explore and define what the people want, uh, and then combine with what the people want to what ecologically and environmentally really needs to be done. And, you know, in the bonding language, when the conservation bond was passed in 08, People specifically said we need to focus on water quality because we know in Iowa we have a real problem with it. And so, you know, here we had our flagship park with uh, deteriorating water quality, and I can go over into some of the different areas where it was deficient. And and so that project surfaced uh, right to the top uh, because of its poor water quality. But we also have other, we have a a filtering system for criteria. Let's say a landowner comes to us and says, I have 100 acres here or 50 acres or 200 acres I'd like to sell to you um, to have it preserved. Well, we don't just go in and and buy all that land that's offered to us. We have a specific filtering uh, process and criteria that we look at to see if it makes sense. And you know, some of the filters include something like, is it a, a biosensitive site along a river and stream, which would help us improve water quality, or does it does it include rare and endangered or threatened species, or is it adjacent to one of our existing conservation areas, which is much more efficient to manage if we have larger areas instead of scattered areas throughout the county, um, and then they... Uh, Another thing that we look at is, is does it, what kind of cultural associations does it have? Does it have cultural and historical associations along with unique plant communities? And so, so you're exactly right. Uh, I think all of the agencies that are in conservation have like a filtering and a, or a priority scheme to evaluate properties and projects. And we only work on the highest priority projects because our funds are limited. Okay. All right. So how big of a project was this, this lake restoration? Um, because I've seen Lake Darling go through something similar. I've seen Lake Geode go through something similar. And when you guys 
you know, do this project? Is it 100% water quality or are there other things that are in the mix with, with this? Uh, the water quality is the driver. Okay. So, so everything that we do is primarily focused on water quality. And, and if there are any proposals as part of the lake restoration effort, which would impair water quality or potentially reduce it, those are scratched from the very beginning and they don't even make it for consideration. So water quality is by far the number one issue, but water quality affects so many different uses, not only for people, but for fish and wildlife. So as long as we're doing this project, you know, if we can do things to improve the fishing for anglers, um, or if we can improve the design of a lakeshore restoration, which also improves water quality to make it better for turtles or animals that move from the land to the water, uh, like access, we also implement those things. So, so you're kind of right. We do both. We water quality is the driver, but we also, as long as we're doing the project, we implement quite a few amenities that also benefit fish and wildlife and people. Okay. So what was bad about the water that led to you guys saying, Hey man, we got to do something about this. Yeah, so, so for, for the lake was built in 1970, and so between 1970 and I'd say probably around 2005, that's about 35 years, the lake served its purpose very well, but after about 2005, the water quality started deteriorating pretty rapidly to where we were getting algae blooms in the lake, and what most people recognize as an algae bloom is that the water is green Mm -hmm. and when it gets really bad it can start to smell and have an odor to it and then in addition to that that creates stressful conditions really through the depletion of oxygen to the aquatic animals that live in that lake and so uh, algae blooms through a process biologists called eutrophication was the main problem and it was objectionable to people. But then we also had problems uh, with E. coli bacteria. And, uh, bacteria can um, cause sickness in humans. If, if your kids get in the water and they ingest it or something like that, it can make them sick. And so we had bacteria readings routinely that were above the guidelines for the EPA. And so... Uh, in addition to the algae blooming and it was being objectionable, we had high bacteria. And then the last few years from about 2014 or 2015 on, we started getting the toxin produced in the lake from the high blue-green algae concentrations. And the, the toxin was called microcystin. And microcystin is a neurotoxin which can actually kill dogs and horses and cows and livestock if they go down and drink it. And so you could imagine what it would do to humans. And and so there are different cases around Iowa and Minnesota where dogs have been killed. You know, they take their dog swimming, they take it to the vet, it's sick, they don't know what's wrong with it, and, and unfortunately the dog would die. And so when you start detecting levels of micro uh, system in your water bodies, it's time to do something immediately. Okay. And, and so... And so we, we, uh, we started an aggressive monitoring program to find out where the problems were coming from. Okay. So then is, was this caused by lack of like running water through the lake or it just stopped turning over or how did, how did all this happen? Or is, or is this just something that all lakes kind of go through? Well, it's, uh, you know, some people might say that it's succession. And, you know, even if you go up to uh, southern Canada and northern Minnesota, where you have these gorgeous natural lakes over periods of hundreds of years or thousands of years, they go through a, a process called succession and they fill in over time. However, the rate at which these lakes go through this eutrophication and succession in Iowa 
is normally associated is really fast and it's associated with our land use practices primarily farming and urban development right and so and, and so this happened over 35 years the other thing that happened is is that when they built the lake and then soon after they built several catch basins above the lake to help filter and protect the water coming into the lake before it gets into the main water body and uh and uh all of those catch basins had uh had uh filled in with sediment and and so there you have to do maintenance on those catch basins to dredge the silt material out of them what we found out is is that those silt basins had filled in with so much sediment that every time it rained the storms were actually washing the nutrients out of the catch basin into the lake and making the lake actually worse so so the original practice of building the catch basins and ponds above the lake to help improve it we're actually making it a lot worse very interesting very interesting that's why they're there because when i drive through the park i'm just like man what is that this is like a simple body of water i don't know why they would build that but now i know why it's there man that's that's pretty cool that's interesting yeah. So, and then, you know, we, after we, after we prescribed all the improvements that we needed to do, we, there are limnologists and people that study water quality. We sent them our plan and had them model what they think our nutrient reduction is going to be by cleaning out the existing catch basins and building new ones. And then they predict what the effectiveness of our lake restoration is going to be. Okay. All right. So everything kind of worked out to the point of, uh, you know, okay, we got all this organized now. Now we just have to do it. So walk us through the process of, you know, draining the lake of what had to happen from either a maintenance standpoint or a construction standpoint for you guys to go in and fix the actual problem. Okay. So, uh, we started in 2014 with this aggressive water monitoring program, and for two years, we took water samples every 10 days, and after every 1.25-inch, one-and-a-quarter-inch rainfall event at 30 different locations within the lake and the watershed. We have about a 600-acre watershed. So we did that for two years. And each one of the locations, 30 different locations, we took close to 15. I can't remember the exact number. We took 15 to 20 tests at each one of the locations. So just to go out and do the water quality testing would take two people like a day and a half to two days. And we're doing that every 10 days. So, So we pinpointed where the problems were coming from and what the issues were through this two years of testing. And it, it really awakens us as to where the problems are at with erosion and nutrient pollution. And so, so we went through this two-year program to identify where the hot spots or the problems were. And then we uh, developed a plan uh, where we would implement what's called best management practices, whether it's ponds or catch basins to collect runoff. In some areas, it may have been where we had the forests had become so dense and so thick from lack of burning that there was no herbaceous plant material growing on the surface of the land within the forest. So every time it rained, we were getting gully erosion and accelerated uh, soil into the lake and so so it's not just about building catch basins and ponds and and improving uh, your existing land management practices going to things like no-till farming but it's also taking a look at your natural plant communities that you have and one of the issues we had at Camp Park was that that landscape 200 years ago was a savanna it was a very open landscape with a lot of prairie plants holding those soils in place. And, you know, 30, 40 years ago, 
but we actually came in and we planted a quarter million trees, uh, which were a lot of oak uh, and walnut and hickory. And those forests did so well and they grew up that they shaded those fragile savanna and prairie soils and we started to get erosion. So, so one of our best management practices is we're going back into those areas where we planted all those oak and walnut trees and we're really thinning, we're thinning those forests and opening them up so more daylight can get to the soil surface so plants will grow and hold the soil in place. And, and so, uh, so it's a pretty complex process to identify all of these problems and then come up with some best management practices to solve the problem. Gotcha. So I see that when I drove through you guys, it almost looked like you were thinning out some of the, the undergrowth and you did some burns. Was that in hopes of restoring that original uh, vegetation? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly what you're doing. What you see if you drive through Camp Park, you'll see a lot of different places where we're thinning that forest and then we're opening up to daylight. And then in a lot of places, we're hand broadcasting and seeding a very diverse mix of prairie wildflowers and grasses to help hold that soil in place. And it takes several years to do that. But uh, the other thing that we're doing is that we, you know, if you're dealing with turf, uh, and you get a rainfall event, something like 50 to 55% of the water is held on the turf, but 45% of it runs off. When you when you got a prairie, 85% of the water is held in place and percolates down into the ground instead of running off. So, so with turf, you have a 45% of the water running off, and with prairie, you have 15%. So we took a hard look at everything we're doing ourselves within the park. And when you walk around that trail now or around the park, you, you're going to see a lot of areas that used to be open turf that are converted to prairie. So, so uh, all those projects uh, help improve the lake's water quality too. Plus, they provide a lot of benefits for wildlife. There's a lot of different birds that depend on that nest, that cover for nesting. And then, of course, all the pollinators that need the nectar from the flowers and and so so you know putting in buffer strips of prairie and converting turf areas and then going into forest areas and thinning them out and then also uh, building five new catch basins or ponds and rehabilitating four others there was a lot of different parts to this project okay so now now we come to you know we've done the water testing and what did that the, the water testing told you is is was that just kind of to say okay this is what we expected um <laughs> yeah it was actually much worse when we looked at what the nutrient levels were primarily phosphorus it was actually much worse than we expected and the inputs from bacteria coming in. Uh, we had a cattle operation upstream from the lake, pretty intense feedlot, and the amount of E. coli bacteria coming off that feedlot and directly into our lake was astronomical. And so, uh, so the testing showed that we had very high levels of phosphorus, way above what's an acceptable standard coming into the lake. Uh, along with the inputs from the livestock operation. And, you know, the livestock operation, uh, they, there's a type of bacteria in their gut called E. coli, and all warm-blooded animals have it. So when we go out and we test that water quality, the bacteria in the lake, uh, it can, it can, that E. coli can be coming from humans. It can through faulty septic systems or, or, or uh, faulty latrines and, and park facilities. It can be coming from geese because they're a warm-blooded animal, or it can be coming from, from cattle and livestock operations. So we pinpointed our testing of where that E. coli was coming from. And while we noticed that, we were probably getting some inputs in different places from people and geese. By far, the largest inputs of the bacteria was coming from the livestock operation. So... So we knew we had to work on all three, but we focused on that property 
were uh, a tributary and runoff coming off that livestock operation. Okay. So, and, then, and then, yeah. Go. go I, I was just going to ask a question about the livestock operation, right? You've identified that this livestock operation is dumping lots of E. coli, e. coli into the lake. Is this something that you say, okay, let's try to figure this out on our own first? Or did you approach the landowner or the the cattle operation and say, hey, here's a problem. Can we work on this together? Or did you try to solve it by yourself? Uh, We did. We did both. So so when you're working with people that make their living off the land, like through agriculture, every situation can be different and this in this particular situation you know the the nrcs uh may have standards that's the natural resource conservation service where in iowa in that area part of johnson county an acceptable stocking rate for livestock may be between one and two head per acre that's where you can go out and for every acre of a pasture you have if you want to manage it appropriately and environmentally sound you can put in one to two head per acre and because of the operation that was set up up there they had a pasture area that they were really treating like a livestock they were getting feeder calves and and uh we 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 had approximately anywhere from 70 to over 100 had a livestock on six acres so so what so where you could have so where that land could support about 12 head per acre we had anywhere between 70 and over 100 head per acre okay well when you get to stocking levels that high which is really a feedlot yeah but there's i mean you, you can't even really do anything except try to go to the area downstream and just you know, armor it with catch basins and other things to try to filter those nutrients out of it. But what we found is, is that whenever you have like an inch to maybe a two inch rainfall, you can do that. That works. But if you have a bad storm come through and drop like three to six inches of rain, all of that material just gets washed completely through the system. Right. And and so, and so we did everything we could do on our own property and, and what ended up happening in the long run is is that that particular landowner decided to move to uh, Wyoming and uh, expand the farming operation out in Wyoming. So we came in and we bought that six to seven acres and convert we're converting it all the prairie right now. And so we we now we've been successful in eliminating that major input of bacteria to the entire lake. Oh, wow. That's cool. And, and so, it, but, but in the meantime, we did everything we could within our park setting. So out of, out of the 600 and some acre watershed to the lake, we had over 400 acres of that watershed within our park. So, so that means that we had a lot of the land under our full control to where we could implement what best management practices we wanted to. And when you're starting to work with lakes like Lake Darling and the other lakes that you mentioned, those areas have such a large watershed that it's difficult for them to have a significant impact on their water quality because so much of the watershed is out of their control. Hmm. And in our case, we, we had we had a lot of control over what was going on. Okay. Well, well, that sounds like it just was, it was the perfect scenario. Like you didn't really run into any trouble. You just, uh, okay. I tell you what, well, you're moving. We'll, we'll buy it. And then problem solved. That's right. And everybody got along well. And, and, uh, you know, we, we, these people with agriculture are the bread and butter. You know, the agricultural economy is huge to this state. And heck, a lot of our staff, we have 22 full-time employees and several of them live on farms and they farm themselves. So, so we get it and we understand it, but still at the same time, we're providing a public lake, you know, a lake that's used for 
the public and people expect those things, those places to be kept up and kept clean and safe for people to use. So sometimes it can be really challenging balancing all those different interests. Gotcha. So at what point then, you know, you've, you've got your water samples of you, you've identified the problem areas. Uh, at what point do you actually drain the lake? Um, well, we, we had a phase one and phase two to our lake restoration. Before we even started on the main lake, we wanted to go into the watershed, that 600 acres above it, and implement all of the best management practices to protect and improve the lake's water quality before we do anything with the lake. So our phase one uh, took a year, year and a half to complete the actual construction, and that's, that's where we went in. We drained all of the existing catch basins that were there. There's four or five of them. Breached the dam, put in a new control structure because the others were 30 years old and needed to be replaced. And then dredged all that material that had accumulated over 30 years and had to take that up on the landscape, uh, stabilize it, uh, and then uh, reseed all those areas to prairie. Uh, to help filter any runoff and keep that sediment from moving back down into the catch basins. So we had to rehabilitate all the existing catch basins, and at the same time, we built uh, four or five brand new ones. And, you know, to do all that, to go into a project and say you're going to build 10 new ponds or catch basins and all different types of landscapes and habitat types and do it and be environmentally sensitive, that takes a long time by itself. And rehabilitating a pond is actually a lot more difficult than building a new one and, and so it was so we did that for a year year and a half uh, in addition to that that at the same time those ponds were being built and rehabilitated we uh, some of our parking lots at Kent Park were designed really poorly you know back in the 70s early 70s people weren't that concerned about water quality so when you build a parking lot the runoff would just run off it right into the lake. Well, we redesigned those parking lots and put in biocells. So now we have no water running off of parking lots and the road system right into the lake. All those those areas are being filtered uh, through prairie grasses and biocells and bioswells before it goes into the lake. So we, we did all that work on the road system. We converted some of our turf areas to prairie. We started working on these forested areas, built these catch basins. After we had all that done, then we drained the lake. Okay. And because, uh, you know, you got, we wanted the lake to dry out about six months minimum before we can expect to get in there to dredge. So, so we got all the work done in the watershed. Then we drained the lake. We thought about six to seven months ahead of time before we would start construction on it. And what that did was allow us uh, not only to dry out the lake bed, but to visually inspect where some of the problems were within the lake basin. Okay. So when you drain this, just out of pure curiosity, what happens to all the fish, turtles, snakes, and stuff that are potentially left behind? Is it just kind of, it's a loss, or do you guys move them somewhere else? Yeah, we, we, we do our best to move them somewhere else. And in fact, in this particular project, uh, the Iowa DNR came in with their fisheries biologists, and they come in when the lake's full. They shock the whole lake, you know, stun the fish, collect them, and then they take them to different ponds and lakes around eastern Iowa. Uh, in this case, we had several ponds in camp park and all those fish are relocated then we lower the lake level to concentrate the fish we lowered it like six feet and we have to have it high enough that we can still get a boat in and so we can't lower it way down we lowered it about five six feet fisheries biologists came back after we had those fish concentrated they shocked it again okay and and so we salvaged all the fish we could then when you get down uh, below that, then we open up the gates and the outlet structure, lower that down, and 
when we get right down close to the end, I mean, there's just hundreds and hundreds of fish in there, you know, that we couldn't get out when it was higher because they were all spread out. So then we opened the DNR, opened it up to what's called promiscuous fishing, where limits don't apply. Right. So I have to buy a fishing license, but and what we ended up happening is, is there's a lot of farmers and other people that own ponds around the area. They came in themselves with nets and seines, and they netted nearly all those fish and took them and used them in their own ponds and other places. You know, a lot of the fish, when we opened up that outlet structure, went right on through down into Clear Creek and into the Iowa River, so so those fish made it out safely, too. Okay. So uh, were you there during any of that process of removing, like removing those fish or shocking those fish? Yeah, I was I was there off and on, not the whole time, but off and on. But our staff was there. In fact, our ranger staff uh, went out with a lot of the private landowners and actually helped them net the fish uh, during the promiscuous fishing to take home. So we had another one of our staff that's not one of our rangers, he's our operations staff. So we actually went out and helped the people get them out of there too. Oh, cool. What Was there anything interesting that you guys pulled out or maybe a fish that was just, oh, my God, this is a big one that we didn't know we had in here? Uh, probably, as far as the game fish go, when you're talking about the bass and the catfish and, and crappies and bluegills, nothing real surprising there. There may have been a couple of big flatheads that, that we were surprised, but the the fish that one of the fish species that was causing a lot of the problems with the lake that we were surprised was a fish called a white amir or a grass carp. So, so back in the late seventies, uh, they were having such a problem in Iowa with aquatic weeds and plants growing in the lakes, and uh, people didn't like that. So, uh, people imported a fish. I think they're from China. Southeast Asia called the white amir or the grass carp, and they come in and they eat all that aquatic vegetation. Well, what ends up happening is that they eat all the good plants, the aquatic weeds and macrophytes. There's so much nutrients in the water. Managing a water plant is just like watering or just like managing land plants, where if you have a lot of fertilizer, you're going to get a lot of growth. And in Iowa, the lakes have so many nutrients in them that they become overrun with these aquatic plants that are rooted in the bottom. Well, the white and mirror are selective, these grass carp. They come in and they eat all of those rooted aquatic, what we call macrophytes or rooted plants. And when you have those types of plants in moderation, if you're an angler, you know there's hardly a better place you can fish than around weed beds. And they're really good fish habitat, but if you get too much of them, you can't fish. Well, the white amir came in, and they ate all those aquatic macrophytes. And so what ends up happening is you have all these nutrients in the water that are not being used by the rooted aquatic plants. And so what ends up happening is, is you have these huge explosions of algae blooms because that those nutrients got to get used somewhere. So, so that's then when you go to the lake and the water's all green, it's because you don't have any of the aquatic plants anymore. All you have is algae. Well, for years, we have tried to take some of the white amir and grass carp out so some of our rooted aquatic plants could get established and start to recycle those nutrients instead of the algae. Well, when we drain the lake, the number of big white amir grass carp that were in there was astronomical. Okay. We just could. We just so 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 you know we knew all along. Uh, biologists have figured out that these grass carp can cause a lot more problems than they're worth uh, in most situations. So we knew that after we drained this lake and we got rid of those white emir grass carp, there's no way in the world we're going to put those back in there. Right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I I think carp have. Overall, just every time you hear someone talk about them these days, it's more of a problem fish than a a good fish. Yeah, they create a lot of water quality problems, and then they also create problems with other fish being able to get a good spawn on. Okay. All right, so you drain the lake, you get the fish out that you want. Um, What happens next? 
uh, well, of course, we had uh, an engineering firm work with us in the DNR to develop a plan for what we're going to do after we get it drained. And based on the experience of other lake restorations around the state, I think we had a really good plan. So, for example, one of the big things that happens in these lake restorations projects is that in some cases you're so successful that the water becomes so clear that, again, you have this explosion of aquatic plants and weeds, then people don't like that. You know, that wherever that sunlight can make it to the bottom, you have these aquatic plants grow, which can be a good thing in moderation. So one of the first things we did was design the entire shoreline of the lake. We went down at a three-to-one slope. So that means for every one foot you go out from shore, the lake slopes down and goes down three feet. And so the idea is, is that when people are on the bank fishing, the lake gets so deep so fast that the sunlight can't make it to the bottom and aquatic plants start to grow next to shore so people can't fish. So, so we made a really steep bank from shore going down at a three-to-one slope to reduce the amount of problems we have with aquatic weeds affecting anglers. Well, at the same time, we don't want to get in a situation where uh, we don't have any aquatic plants because then we're just going to get algae blooms. So at the same time, we, we created these steep banks coming offshore. We also constructed four fish reefs out in the lake. And each one of these fish reefs come up to between three and four feet depth from the surface of the lake. So, so the lake is anywhere from, it drops really straight down to about 12 feet deep, and then it, the basin goes out to deepest spots about 22 feet. So when you're out in this 12 to 16 feet of water, you have these fish reefs built that come up to about three to four foot depth, and uh, those fish reefs are about 25 to 30 feet wide, and they're over 150 feet long. And the sides of those fish reefs are very steep, too, and all lined in stone, limestone, uh, which is also great fish habitat. And by putting that stone on the side of the fish reefs, you help keep them in place because they're made of clay. And when you saturate them when the lake's full, you don't want them to slump. So we line all of those fish reefs in rock, which is great for fishing. Then we developed and amended a soil on top of them that supports aquatic plants. And so our fish reefs come within three to four feet of the surface. And then after we had the fish reefs built, we went in and we hand planted 28,000 submerged aquatic plants, the type that fish like, out on these fish reefs. So, so now when you're out there fishing, if you're in a boat fishing or even from shore in some areas, you got these areas where you have these aquatic weed beds made up of things like uh, 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 water lilies, uh, eelgrass, pond weed, and spatter dock, and, and these weed beds drop straight off down to 12 to 14 feet of water, the stone, all the way around them. So they're exceptional for fishing, but at the same time, we're providing our desirable aquatic plants that we want out of the reach of anglers fishing from shore. Okay, and and then and then some of those fish reefs too. Each one of the reefs have an area modified on them, where three three feet deep, we have uh, pea gravel with uh, fabric underneath the pea gravel, and we created spawning beds. So you, when you go around the lake and you create these steep drop offs all the way around the lake shore, you're eliminating a lot of spawning beds. So we intentionally engineered and designed in spawning beds, too, so all the bluegills and bass and crappies that are in there have some place to reproduce. Wow. Sounds like a lot a lot of thought. I mean, t- down to the very nth degree was was implemented into this, this restoration project. Yeah, you know, you know, when the lake's been there, and you, hopefully, you know, our goal was to create a lake restoration project where you don't have to go through another restoration for 50 years yeah and that's a tall order 
you know, the fact that the lake was drained for over two years and we're working on this watershed, that really disrupts the recreational use of the park. So as long as we're going to do this and it takes just two, two and a half years of construction, we want to do it right. Right, right. All right, so you... You implemented all these um, these habitat. It looks like uh, I'm looking on the map, and it also looks like you dumped some some big like big brush piles or dead tree piles in there as well. Yeah, so you know people who like to ice fish, uh, everybody who ice fishes knows the secrets to find structure under the water in the wintertime. And so another beauties of this project is is that in the light in the park we had quite a few. Uh, trees they're called osage orange or hedge trees they're very hard wood and they're just like stone they'll last forever and and they they grow in kind of a round or globular shape great for fish habitat at the same time these hedge trees overtake areas that are sensitive plant communities like prairie so when we did the lake restoration we went out and we found 20 uh, of these large hedge trees out in the park that were in sensitive prairie areas and we dug those out okay and and then we transported them down to the lake and along the main lake channel in the basin of the lake we embedded 20 of these large osage orange trees which will just provide outstanding habitat for ice fishing wow that's awesome awesome so it, it sounds like a lot of thought you know obviously the water quality was the big issue but for the the recreation you know the people who like to to fish that uh you through this through this process you've made the fishing or the hopes is to make the fishing better at this lake exactly we went all out you know you know when people go out and buy their fishing license and you know a certain percentage of that money goes into a fish habitat program and then in addition to that fish habitat program that the anglers are paying for uh the uh iowa legislature appropriates money every year to the dnr for just lake restoration and so the anglers are putting a lot of money through the sale or purchasing their fishing licenses and some of that we also got a ninety-seven thousand dollar grant just for money generated from the sale of fishing licenses for this project and so the, all those fish reefs I was telling you about, all those fish reefs were built by funding from anglers. Wow. And, and, and so, uh, so we had a combination of Johnson County conservation bond money in it, uh, the Iowa DNR lake restoration, and fish habitat funds that anglers pay for. Okay. All right. So you did the work. Um how does one reintroduce fish back into the lake? Do you guys go through a hatchery or do you guys go back to the ponds that you dumped your fish in originally? Uh, neither, neither of those two. We, the, the entire, the DNR and the fisheries biologists are working closely with us from this beginning of this entire project from the monitoring on. And so, they're calling a lot of the shots on what to do based on their experience. And so, so for example, when, when we're designing these catch basins and ponds above the lake, there's three or four of those that are designed excellent for fishing too. Mm-hmm. So, so in addition to restocking the lake, we're also creating fish habitat and stocking some of these ponds above the lake. And the DNR fisheries team, they come in and they stock the lake and those catch basins uh, they have a certain sequence they like to do things in. Uh, they come in first and they put in bluegills, and bluegills will spawn multiple times a year. So so they may come in, let's say we finish building the lake in the fall and we close the gate, and we start to flood the basin, uh, refill the lake. Well, there, there was only like six, seven feet of water in that lake basin, uh, and it's not full yet, but the biologist that fall sleeper told us that these young fish are really vibrant and strong, just like people. And so even though there's not 20 feet of water in there, these young bluegills can survive that. So they came in at that point when the lake was filling, and they put in uh, real small bluegills to get those bluegills to start to spawn to produce young. 
and and uh, in fact, we had one case where we the, what happened is is that the fish hatchery over at Fairport along the Mississippi was going to flood, and so they were raising all these thousands of fish for us to stock in Camp Park Lake. The Mississippi River was going to come up and flood that hatchery and kill a lot of those fish. It would threaten them. So we had our catch basins all built. So the fisheries biologists went down there, got all those bluegills out of that hatchery, and they brought them up here to us, and they stocked them in our catch basins above the lake. Oh, okay. So we were at, so we were actually using our, our catch basins right above the lake as like a fish hatchery. And then uh, when the lake got just enough water in it that it could support the bluegills, we opened up the control structures on those ponds and let all those bluegills go down into our new lake that was filling. And, and, and so that, so in the fall, we stocked bluegills. The following spring or summer, uh, this would be last summer, we put in, uh, last summer and fall, the fishery guys came back and they put in uh, uh, bass and catfish because then they had plenty of food to eat with all the reproducing bluegills. Okay. And and so and so last year we had bass, catfish, and bluegills in there, and they wanted to monitor that population to make sure they were doing very well before they came in and they put in crappie. And so just this summer, when the fisheries biologists were out netting uh, Lake McBride and some of the other lakes, they hand-selected uh, males and female black crappies that were, you know, a few weeks out from spawning, and I think they brought in 85 pairs. I can't remember if it was 85 fish or 85 pairs of really nice, high-quality, healthy black crappies, and they stocked all those in the lake. Okay. So, so the whole sequence is determined by the fisheries biologists, and we went bluegill, bass, catfish, and then black crappie. Okay. Are there any other species that you guys plan on introducing into the into the lake? No, that that's it for that's now. That's it. Okay. All right. You know, you, we don't want to run into any problems, and uh, it would be a shame to get some species in there that would cause a problem. We'd have to drain that whole thing down and start over. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, you guys have – you guys – the, the water's back in the lake, right? You said you just introduced your last species of crappie. So far, how how has this restoration project gone? I mean, did you guys run into any bumps in the road? Has it gone pretty good? Uh, are you guys on track? Is it, is it now just a matter of continuing the, the water quality samples and so forth? Yeah, so... So the construction process itself, there's a lot of challenges working in these basins because, as you know, all water flows downhill, and every time it would storm, it would make these working conditions really poor. And so the construction process was very challenging. However, now since it's done, we are just elated. I mean, it's unbelievable. So we had goals. So, for example, one of the things that people associate with when you go to a lake is water clarity. How clear does that water look? Mm-hmm. And so when we did all of our testing before the lake was built, the average uh, the average depth of what we call a sucky disc, they take it like a pie plate, nine inches in diameter, white sucky disc, and they lower it down in the water, and you measure how far down it is before you can't see some stripes on it. And before we built the lake, the, the water clarity on these sucky discs you could see down about 0.2 to 0.8 meters, which translates to, uh, on average, around one and a You could only see down in that water a foot and a half, and sometimes it was worse than that. And now we, we've continued our water monitoring just like we did before the lake was done. We're continuing that same process. So we just had guys out there two days ago, our staff, doing all the water quality monitoring in the same 30 locations, same parameters, so we're measuring the effectiveness of our effort. And what we just uh, yesterday, they went out and they took sucky disc readings again, and our water clarity has gone from one and a half feet to 12 feet. Wow. It's it's unbelievable. So we're getting different sucky disc readings now, of anywhere from two meters to three point six meters 
and before the lake was done, that was 0.2 to 0.8 meters. So the water clarity has unbelievably improved. And our goal, working with this technical advisory team, was 1.3 meters over through the through the uh, summer season. And so right now, we're at two to 3.6. So we've we've practically doubled our water clarity goal, which you can imagine how excited we are about that. Yeah. And then, and then uh, in phosphorus, last year we had two STEM teachers, the science, tech, I don't know, science, technology, engineering, and math, that to volunteer. Well, it's a program that, uh, that's administered by the volunteer program for the state of Iowa. They wrote a grant through the REAP program, and they sponsor teachers around the state from elementary, middle school, and high school to go out and get them science-based applied jobs through the summertime so they can teach their students more about hands-on science and technology. So last summer, we had two of these high school science teachers from Johnson and Lynn counties working for us all summer, and they went in and monitored all this water quality and we documented last year, the first year after the restoration, we had an 86% reduction in the amount of phosphorus coming into the lake. And that is completely unheard of. I mean, that, that's like one of the most successful lake restorations, nutrient reduction projects you could have. And just, when we went through our, our goal, when we started this planning process, based on the concentrations of phosphorus in the lake that was causing these algae blooms, we, we were hoping to get a 50 to 55% reduction in the amount of phosphorus coming into the lake. And our modeling from all of our best management practices showed the most reduction we, were able, we would probably get would be 49%. And our goal was 50 to 55%. And last year we had an 86% reduction in phosphorus. So, so when you talk about the success of the project, you know, we have our fingers crossed. But right now uh, our approach was to do everything we could do to improve water quality in that lake. And it looks like it's paying off. Yeah, I would definitely call that a success. So kudos to you and, and to your team, man. That's awesome. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And so, so you know, we're continuing to monitor it. And uh, we look at this as a learning process, too. So, you know, it's not every day you get to go through one of these lake restoration projects. So, so we're collecting all the data. We're monitoring everything closely. And, you know, we'll probably have hiccups or things that we need to change or improve upon. And, We'll do that, but the amount of uh, new things that we learned going through the process is uh, amazing, too. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, uh, Larry, is there anything else that uh, you want to mention about this project before we shut it down? I, I don't think so. I appreciate you calling and asking about it. You know, if you figure we started it in 2014 and now it's 2020, you know, that's a six year uh, from the beginning of the monitoring till when we get the lake filled. It took six years, two years of monitoring, uh, two to three years of construction, and now about one to two years to like to fill back up. So it's a, you know, we appreciate everybody's patience and and uh and uh especially all the support that we've had you know through the conservation bond and and you know the other thing too is is that i've only worked here seven years but there's quite a few of our staff that have worked there 25 to 30 years and just in the last month there's been several days where they've come to me and they told me since this park was built we have one guy that's worked there since 1970s worked there 49, 50 years, almost 50 years this year. And they've told me they've never seen this many people in the park. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so that's, uh, that's really, uh, comforting and the staff feel good when they see people 
using something that we worked so hard to create. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you right now, uh, for those of you who are listening and, and uh, get the opportunity to go to this park, um, the water quality is stunning right now just from a visual. You know, I, I don't know anything about science, but I will tell you that from a visual standpoint, the park is beautiful. The water is beautiful. The trails are accessible to everybody, right, all the way around the lake. And, uh, man, it's just an awesome place to go to get closer to nature. So uh, good job to you and your crew. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Dan. If anybody has any questions, uh, they can uh, Google Johnson County Conservation and uh, contact us via Facebook, or they can go to the county website and email us or call us at any time if they have questions. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout out to Larry for taking time out of his day. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day. Really appreciate it. And be sure to subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe and get a subscription to the Iowa Sportsman Magazine. And you can do that at iowasportsman.com. Have a good weekend. Have a good week. And we'll talk to you later. 